There are so many reasons that we give for not wanting to study systematic theology. We might think it's too hard, or that it's just something for pastors and seminary students. We might worry that it puts God in a box, or frankly, we might find it all just a bit boring. In my interview today, I'm talking with John Nielsen about six common objections to studying theology that he's heard over the years as a pastor, including that it's too impractical, too confusing, and too divisive. John Nielsen serves as the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Wheaton, Illinois. He's also the author of Knowing God's Truth, An Introduction to Systematic Theology, which is the first book in Crossway's new Theology Basic Suite, a collection of books and study guides that introduce readers to systematic theology, biblical theology, and biblical hermeneutics. Let's get started. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Good to be here. Thanks, Matt. So today we're going to talk about uh, some of the common objections uh, that people often have when it comes to systematic theology. Uh, for some people, that term obviously is, uh, they, they love theology, they love talking about these things, but, but for others, uh, it's a pretty intimidating kind of topic, or it, it has all kinds of baggage that they don't love. And so today I want to talk about some of that baggage, perhaps, that people might have. And so uh, we're going to go through a few of these together. The first one, I think the most maybe common one that people would resonate with is just systematic theology is too hard. Mm -hmm. I'm not smart enough. I don't have a degree. I never went to Bible college. It's just hard. What would your initial response be to that? Yeah, it's a really common response, as, as you note. I mean, I think I would start by saying... Yes, I agree with you. Systematic theology is hard. There are people who give their lives, their professional lives for years and years and years to the study and the discipline of systematic theology. And what has been said about the Bible, that it is deep enough for an elephant to drown in and Mm. yet shallow enough for a child to play in, I think is true of systematic theology as well. There's like a paradoxical nature to it. Yes, And so, yes, the deeper you go in systematic theology and and systematic theological study, there's more complexity, there's more depth. You're not going to run out Mm. of work that you can do in the discipline. But I also want to say everybody, if they're having thoughts about God, if they're studying the Bible, even if they're checking out Christianity for the first time, they are beginning to engage in theological thought at some level. Mm. I want to think about systematic theology more as a trajectory rather than this insurmountable jump that you can't, you can't even begin accessing. Mm. Um, it's like a journey. Yeah. It's not necessarily just the final destination. That's exactly right. So, so even people, even my kid, I've got young children, even my young children who are beginning to formulate the most basic of thoughts about, about the gospel, about sin, about salvation, my four-year-old who's beginning to try to wrestle through what does it mean that God is one God and yet in three persons? <laughs> She's doing systematic theology yeah, um, as a four-and-a-half-year-old and trying to figure out what God is like. So as you, uh, you're a pastor, and as you, as you talk with people in your church, how do you try to uh, get them to broaden their view that systematic theology isn't just an academic discipline that is for like scholars in a classroom context, but it's actually something that we're all doing all the time. And it's kind of, it permeates all of our thinking about God. How do you help people to understand that? Yeah. I, I don't know that I always do that well, mm. fr- frankly, in, in my preaching. I'm, I'm trying to do it 
better. I mean, a couple of the ways I think I've tried to do it more explicitly and intentionally is that I preach generally in an expositional way. So we're working through books of the Bible, but I'll try to intentionally stop and highlight if there's a theological theme or or a systematic theological concept that's being taught clearly in scripture and kind of highlight that. Sometimes I'll even say, we're going to have a little theological moment here. And then try to directly apply it to what that means for their lives. So I, I'm just, I'm prepping. We're, we're in the book of Judges right now. And so I'm preparing a sermon for this Sunday on Judges 4 and 5, the story of Deborah and Barak, and then Heber the Kenite and his wife, J.L., who's the <laughs> one who kills. And this is an exciting story. It's an exciting story. So <laughs> she's the one who kills the general Sisera, uh, you know, the evil, oppressive general who's, who's assaulting God's people. And there's a moment right in the middle of the narrative where the story of Deborah and Barak is going on. And then in verse 11, Judges 4, it's kind of this aside. And the narrator goes, now, by the way, Heber the Kenite had moved his tent from one place to another. And then it goes back to the story of Deborah and Barak. And you're like, what in the world? Mm, Yeah. And it's this moment that is showing God's sovereign providential oversight of even that detail of Heber and his wife, J.L., moving. And in God's sovereignty, Sisera is going to end up in their tent as he's running away from the battle. And J.L. is going to be the one who's going to put him to death and have a role in delivering God's people. Mm -hmm. And that's a moment that's teaching us about the sovereignty of God, his providence. And then I'm going to try to connect that just to to, to helping our people understand God is active. He is providentially controlling and ordaining all the events of our lives, even when we can't tell. Mm. That's a great segue into another one that we'll talk about in a few minutes, just about systematic theology being too abstract and impractical. Yeah. Uh, but maybe before we get there, one other critique I've heard sometimes from people who maybe don't always love our focus on systematic theology is they can say that the language often employed in theological discussions is just too esoteric, it's too, uh, too technical, and it ends up um, making people feel like they can't do it. And it, may, it ends up using that theological language is unnecessarily difficult or complicated. How do you think about that, especially in your preaching and your teaching and your discipling? Do you try to call people to some of the technical language that has been developed in church history? Or do you tend to say, no, I, I want to restate things in a more accessible way? I think both and. So you're right. Theological jargon and mm. theological vocabulary can be, I think it can feel like it's a hindrance. It can feel like it's a hard bar to get over. But I also think it's helpful. So, so I want to I want to define things clearly. So even in the book, I'll use the language of soteriology, but I'll also call it the doctrine of salvation. Mm. But I also think it's important to teach people those terms so that they can enter into theological conversations without feeling like, oh, I don't know the vocabulary, so I can't have these conversations. Yeah. So, so even people who, you know, like you mentioned at the beginning, haven't been to seminary, maybe haven't even been to a Christian college, haven't even been a Christian for very long, I think it's helpful for them to develop some of that theological vocabulary mm. because it'll help them engage in conversations. Yeah, yeah. All right, n- number two, objection number two, systematic theology is boring. Uh, it's just dry. It's it's just boring. Yeah. Uh, do you hear that? I absolutely hear it. I hate hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> How much of that is on the teacher versus the student? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a great question. It is 
Yeah, I think it is sometimes on the teacher. Um, I remember my, my advisor in seminary was Don Carson, D.A. Carson, who I love and admire. He's, he's marked my gospel ministry. But I remember him saying, um, my students won't remember everything I teach them, but I found that they do tend to remember what I was most excited about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, shame on me as a Bible teacher or as a teacher of theology if my audience doesn't sense my excitement. Mm about the things of God and the things that I'm teaching. So yeah, sometimes it can be on the teacher. It can be on the student if they are not connecting what they're learning about theologically to their relationship with the living God. So I do think theology can become dry and academic and boring when it's just lumped into every other academic pursuit. You know, I'm, I'm learning these facts about this supreme divine being. But if we approach it as I, I am learning about the living, reigning God who has saved me by his son, with whom I'm in a, a saving relationship for all eternity, I, I just think that should be thrilling, not boring. Mm. I'm learning about my savior and my friend and my king. That's one of the reasons why throughout the book, there, there are these prompts to stop and pray so that we always, when we're doing theology, when we're doing theological work, we want to be stopping and actually talking to God. Mm, responding. About, responding to him about what we're learning about him. Yeah, because he is a person. It's not studying plants Correct. or insects. As, as fascinating as that even can be. Yes. Uh, we're actually studying a living being. Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember from your own life, like the moment that uh, your passion for studying theology started to grow, you know, as a, I imagine as a young person, perhaps, uh, is there a moment in time where you can kind of point to and say that that was where I first grasped the excitement that comes of studying God? Uh, senior year of high school, Bible class, our, uh, my Bible teacher had us read through Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, mm. um, the old blue one, a big, big, thick one. And there was something about just the organization of themes and topics and um, the clarity with which he laid out doctrines and explained different views on things that, that I was 17 years old. And it, I don't, it, was like, it was like a new room in my faith that I had walked into. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I'd, I'd been taught the Bible in Sunday school, in my home. So I, I knew Bible stories. You know, I knew Bible trivia. But it was my first venture into kind of a systematic, organized approach to thinking through doctrine mm. that was pretty thrilling to me at that point. And I think from there, it became, yeah, it, it became something that I, I was passionate about. I wanted to learn more. And I, and I wanted to learn what I believed, mm, yeah. you know, about salvation, about the nature of sin, about the end times. Yeah. So I wanted to dig into that. All right, number three, systematic theology is too abstract. You've kind of already hit on this, but yeah, how do you think about that critique that it often, in the way that we talk about it, it's often not connected to practical daily life? Yeah. Yeah, well, probably, obviously, I I think it is. Just one example would be when something hard comes into your life. So about about a year ago, I was, I guess a little under a year ago, I, I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer and Mm. have been battling that and undergoing treatment for the last year. When you get news like that, 
or when, when you lose a loved one suddenly. What you believe to be true about God matters so much. Mm. Theo- all of a sudden, theological concepts like, like the sovereignty of God, like the certainty of salvation, like what we hope for in eternity, become very, very practical mm. and much more tangible. So, so I always want to start by saying, you know, if you don't think theology matters practically, just wait. <laughs> Give it a few months or a few years when something hard comes into your life, all of a sudden it begins to matter even more what you believe. But then I, but even in everyday life, I sometimes will try to help people understand that everything you do, every choice you make every day is in some ways a theological decision. And it reflects what you believe about God, what you believe is true of yourself, what you believe about your identity in Christ. Um, so we're never not making theologically informed decisions, if that mm. makes sense. It seems like a lot of times the way theology forms us is is almost subconscious. I don't know if that's the right term, but it's not always us thinking about, okay, I'm going to apply this doctrine in this way, although sometimes that happens. But there's a there's a deeper shaping and forming that can be at play there. Do you yeah. think that's true? Yeah, I think the more that we go deep in theology too, the more it changes our hearts. <laughs> and back to the the idea of a relationship with God. It should be deepening our understanding of the God to whom we pray, <laughs> um, with whom we walk every day. So it should be doing something to our hearts. Mm-hmm. And it should be changing us not only mentally, you know, it's not a purely academic en- enterprise. It should be changing us emotionally, too. Mm. I think the caricature of this uh, of this idea we've been talking about, and to take your example of, of a scary cancer diagnosis, uh, the caricature would be, all right, you get this diagnosis, but because you believe God is sovereign over all of this, over every facet of your life, uh, you hear that news, and then you can kind of sit back and pretty chill and just think, okay, yeah, it's okay. I feel fine. I trust God. Uh, but that that isn't always our experience. How would you explain how this doctrine of God's sovereignty and providence bolstered you in the midst of that news? Yeah, it's, it's not, what it's not is theological pat answers, right? Pollyanna, everything's, everything's fine. Hey, God is always, always working for, our glo- or for, for his glory and our good, and everything's going to be fine. Yeah, so, yeah, so stop mean, whining. Yeah, so stop whining, put your chin up. Yeah, so, so it, it's not that it, it makes hard things less hard, and it's not that it takes pain away, but I will say it was an opportunity for me this last year to say, do I really believe what I say I believe? Mm. Do I really believe God is, is not just allowing this, but ordaining it for his glory and for my eternal good in Christ? Because that's what I would have said I believed two years ago, but, but it was an opportunity for me to actually cling to that personally in faith and not just say, yeah, that's a theological concept. No matter what happens, no matter what comes into our lives, God's ordaining it for his glory and for our good. Yeah, okay. But it was an opportunity for me to feel it too and mm-hmm. e- experience it. And I, I would say I believe it more deeply. Mm-hmm. Mm, praise God. Okay, another uh, objection people often have, and this one's getting a little bit more, maybe a little bit more complicated. They would say that systematic theology isn't actually very biblical. And by that, I think they often mean that um, systematic theology is 
often guilty of imposing extra-biblical categories on the Bible, frameworks on the Bible that don't necessarily exist there. We would be better off just reading the Bible on face value, taking each passage as it comes, and not trying to go much beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I first want to acknowledge that objection has a lot of truth to it. Mm. I mean, the Bible comes to us 66 books, over 40 different human authors, at least six distinct literary genres written over thousands of years. It does not come to us as neatly packaged as Wayne Grudem's systematic yeah. theology. It's not an encyclopedia. Correct. Yeah, which is what kind of a lot of systematic theologies sort of do. They, yes. they organize and rearrange and summarize. But, but what I, what I want to actually argue for is that it is the unity of Scripture and the idea of God as the divine author who inspired all of it that should embolden us to do systematic theology. Mm. In other words, if the Bible does have over 40 different human authors, but one divine author who inspired every single word by the Holy Spirit, then we should have confidence that he is going to speak and act in consistent ways and in ways that we can then gather and summarize and use some organizational categories to explain. Mm. So we can begin to gather, huh, there are consistent ways that the Bible will talk about this aspect of God's character. Mm. Or, I mean, a great example of this would be the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and Trinity, as you know, is a word that the Bible doesn't actually use. But what we're doing when we work through f- forming our doctrine of the Trinity is we're gathering all of these truths about God that he's revealing throughout his word, and we're saying, this is here. And we are evaluating the biblical text in its context at every step. Yeah. So that's where, that's where you can get off in a dangerous direction is if systematic theology becomes this kind of philosophizing that's totally detached from the biblical text, yeah, you're, you're off base. Your theology has to be in some ways tethered by yeah. uh, what the text is actually saying in context yes. in every case. And, yeah, and not just proof texting, but reading it. In, you're actually doing exegesis of every text as you're reading it in context. You're not just pulling mm. proof texts out. Yeah, that's good. All right, another one kind of related to this one, but maybe a little bit different. That systematic theology often tries to put God in a box. And I think undergirding this kind of critique is just the sense that systematic theology can try to understand and explain God in ways that we just simply can't. He, he's beyond us. It doesn't leave room for mystery. What do you think about that? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. The, the distinction I like to make, and, and I think I make this in the introductory chapter of the book, is that in systematic theology— we are trying to know God truly. That is, truly, as he's revealed himself to us in his word, while understanding that we are never going to know or comprehend God exhaustively. So, so we, we can come to conclusions about things that are true of God. But that's different than saying we now know everything about God or Mm. we understand him exhaustively. So absolutely leaving room for mystery, leaving room for our acknowledgement of the fact that we're finite 
and we're studying and trying to learn about an infinitely glorious mm. being. How do we know where that line is, though? Sometimes it can feel a little, maybe not super clear, where we've, when we've started to move beyond uh, what we should be trying to take from Scripture and, and organizing that into kind of a, a, a detached philosophizing about God. I, I know I mentioned the doctrine of the Trinity before, but my mind goes there again. In, in terms of, that's a great example of a doctrine where you can summarize truths about God in three persons. But there is a point where you stop and you say, my head hurts, <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> try, try explaining this to kids. That's the right. best way to see how, how hard it is. Yeah. And then, you know, the Trinity is a great one where you think about there's actually no human analogy or metaphor that captures it. And the minute you use the egg one or the father, son, husband one, you've actually gone into heresy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a point where you say, there, there's one God who has existed eternally in three persons. The father is God. The son is God. The spirit is God. The father is not the son. The son not, is not the spirit. And the spirit is not the father. And... There's not much further you can go other than to say there is mystery there. Mm. And it is beyond us. And that's actually a helpful proof that God is, is real and he is beyond mm. all human understanding. And it does seem like in the history of the church where people do run into heresy, it often is them arguably going beyond yeah. what scripture actually says. They're trying to logically make it make sense yeah. in ways that maybe they can't. I think that's right. I mean, you look at the different heresies about the person of Christ and whether it's Arianism on the one hand where, it, oh, Jesus can't really be fully eternally God or whether it's docetism and they're saying Jesus couldn't have actually become really human. He must have just appeared to become human. Mm. They're trying to explain it in human terms. And you're right, box it up mm. in a way that we can, our, our minds can fully swallow. <laughs> what are some of the other, so you mentioned the Trinity and the person of Christ. What are some of, other, some of the other mysteries of the Christian faith that you would say theology can only take us so far in? Yeah, definitely God's sovereignty, human responsibility. I mean, I'm reformed in my soteriology. I'm, I'm a Calvinist. And yet, uh, even a reformed Calvinist has to, and, and our Westminster Confession of Faith acknowledges this too, that, that God's sovereignty in no way does damage to real human responsibility. And you, you see in the narrative, for example, of the Old Testament in Exodus, phrases about Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart against mm. God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, the passive, you know. <laughs> um, and those are all true ways of describing what's going on. Mm. Is, is God responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? Is he, is he raising him up so that he will get glory yeah. over Pharaoh and the deliverance of his people? Yes. But is Pharaoh actively, sinfully hardening his heart against God and against God's word through Moses? Absolutely. Mm. So that would be another one where there, there is tension there. And, there, and you have to at some point say, there, there's still mystery there, and it is of God. And rest, in, rest by trusting in him. I was going to say, what would you say to the person who is maybe on the other side, they don't like the mystery, 
Yeah. They, they tend to feel uncomfortable by the mystery and they're always wanting to like, they want to solve that riddle. It's like, if I can just think about it a little bit more, if I can just define things a little bit better, maybe I can kind of get through that into a intellectually satisfying resolution to that. How do you counsel someone who's on that side? Yeah. About that specific. Yeah. Human- about that, that impulse that they don't, they're not, they don't know how they can stop and be content with the mystery of God's sovereignty and human freedom, for example. They, they kind of feel the need to keep going and finding a way to reconcile those two things. Yeah, I, I would probably see a both and there. I mean, on, on, the ones, on the one hand, you want to say, keep reading. There are brilliant minds who've written about all these things. So dig deep. You know, I remember in my doctoral work, there was this really helpful analogy from John, one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons that helped me understand that interplay between God's sovereignty, human responsibility a little better. So some of these great minds mm. of the past can help us. So there, there probably is more you could be reading There's more you profitably. could be reading, yeah. yeah. But then there are times where Scripture will, where Paul will say things like, who are you to answer back to God? Mm. Or, you know, the, the great example is Job, where, where the amazing thing about the book of Job is God never gives him the answers God could have easily said, Job, here's the deal. Satan came to me, you know, and I allowed him that this is why this. God never tells him the why. But Job is called to end the book by putting his hand over his mouth and trusting that God is God and he is not. And and that is the posture that I think a, a genuine believer needs to be willing to get to. Mm. Not that you don't wrestle, not that you don't seek a deeper understanding. We should. But there is a point where every believer is called to say, okay, I, like Job, I spoke once. I'm not going to speak again. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust that God is God. Yeah. All right. Uh, maybe a last common objection that we often hear and is that systematic theology is too controversial, that it often leads to these discussions, this focus on doctrine yeah. can just generally lead to a lot of division and discord and disunity in the church. And it's kind of hard to disagree with that. We look around and we see the hundreds of denominations and even independent churches that don't like this other church for this reason or they split apart. How do you respond to to that kind of concern that theology leads to division? Yeah. Yeah, I I first want to say some divisions, not, not, not angry, sinful divisions, but some divisions like denominational differences, I would say are okay. Do I think that I'm an ordained pastor in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. Do I think that heaven is going to be broader than the PCA? <laughs> yes. Praise God. <laughs> you know, um, There's going to be a lot of people in heaven who are not part of the PCA. Mm. Um, but do I think that there would be practical difficulties for PCA elder with, with Reformed convictions, you know, who subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith, worshiping with someone from a very staunchly Wesleyan, Arminian mm-hmm. conviction, or, or someone from a more charismatic church or, or whatever it is, yeah, it would be hard to do church life together. Yeah. And yet I think we're going to share eternity mm. together. Um, so so I, I always want to say, like, denominational differences and theological differences in convictions are not bad in and of themselves. I also want to say, like, you can't, even if you think you're staying out of the conflict, you're actually not. So if you, if you take the, the approach where you just say, hey, you know, I, I don't like this theology stuff. It, cause, it causes fights. Just love Jesus and love people. 
that's actually that's throwing a punch, mm. theologically speaking. How so? Because the person says that thinking, hey, this is the humble, I'm, I'm taking the high road here. Right. Well, for one thing, what do you mean love God, love people? What does that look like? You know? Mm. Secondly, I mean, if you're trying to be atheological, that is actually a theological claim. You are saying that deeper knowledge or doctrine is not important. Mm. It's, not, it's not fundamentally important to a walk with Christ or to a way a church operates. That is a theological... Now, it, it's, a, it's a theological statement that's against theology, yeah. but it is a theological statement. It's saying that whole world, that whole realm is not important for Christians or for the church. We just need this simple mantra, love God, love people. So in other words, you've entered the conflict <laughs> even if you feel like you're not. Hmm. So I, w- I would urge people, no, you, you want to search the scriptures, search, search good theological thinkers, figure out what you believe, and then pursue that. Have you ever wrestled with the question of if theology is so important, if God has given us his word in order to teach us these doctrines about himself, why is the church so divided, though, on so many things? Even if we're not coming to blows, even if it's not angry, hostile division, nevertheless, on something like baptism, for example, or yeah. something else, why is there so much disagreement? Uh, what, have you ever, has that ever concerned you or made you wonder about why God would do it this way? I would answer that by saying yes and no. I would say yes, I have struggled with that. And I do think that, man, what will heaven be like mm. in terms of, you know, I think we'll all have blind spots exposed. I, I hold my reformed convictions strongly. I believe them for a reason. I affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith for a good reason, yeah. I, I think. Yeah. But certainly when we get to heaven, I think we'll, there will be some, some blind spots exposed. But I also, but the reason I said yes and no is because there are such clear Christian beliefs that I think genuine believers do agree on. Mm. And it comes back to the clarity of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture, the sinfulness of humanity, the necessity of the work of Christ on the cross, salvation by faith alone, the authority, the inerrancy of Scripture. There are vast numbers of Christians globally who would affirm those. Yeah those tenets of the faith. It can be so easy to focus on some of the areas of disagreement, and we take for granted all of the agreement that yes. throughout history Christians yes. have had. So, you know, if you if you would take something like Nicene, the Nicene, so Nicene Christianity globally, there would be widespread agreement, even interdenominationally, on a lot of that. And and we've seen some some good examples of those affirming those things, like the Gospel Coalition, the gathering of those who would hold to a reformed view of soteriology. Mm-hmm. I would say that would be but a... various ecclesiologies and all kinds of other yeah. issues. Presbyterians, Baptists, Anglicans, mm. um, but core soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, agreement on those things. Yeah, yeah. All right, maybe let's get into a, a little bit of a lightning round of a few additional questions that I thought could be kind of interesting to hear from you. A lot of these would be kind of your own personal opinions on things. So, okay, okay. Uh, first question What's your favorite doctrine, at least right now? I, I, I know that it's, it's going to be hard to choose, but if you had to pick something right now, what would you say? The, the doctrine, it's somewhat of a subset of the doctrine of God or theology proper, but the, it was interesting how many times in the book and in the, the videos that accompany the book, 
I kept coming back to the doctrine of the aseity of God, mm. A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's a deep cut for many people, so you're going to have to explain what yeah, that, what yeah. that means. Yeah, so... And again, I mentioned Dr. Carson before. He, it was he, I remember him talking about this all the time. But the aseity of God refers to the fact that God is of himself. He, he's not dependent on anything else. He, he is completely satisfied in and of himself. Hmm. And it was interesting as I was, as I was thinking through this kind of introduction to systematic theology, how many doctrines actually came back to that? that you think about, okay, if God has existed from eternity past, long before the creation of the world, completely satisfied and joyful in and of himself, God in three persons, then what must that mean for his deci- about his decision to create the world? He didn't do it because he was deficient in any way. Mm. He didn't do it because he needed the universe to you know, save him from his boredom. Or, or he didn't create human beings because he needed friends because he was lonely. Or he needed worship. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't even need our worship. So what does that mean about creation? What does that mean about salvation? What does it mean about what God desires from his people? So many things flow out of that doctrine of God's just self-sufficiency, the fact that he is of himself. And just one of the conclusions, for example, of creation, why does God create? It has to be something along the lines of God created out of the joyful overflow Mm. of his own satisfaction in and of himself. The very act of creation is an act of his overflowing grace. Mm. Um, And that that just, I think that ought to make us adore him even more. Yeah, yeah. That's so good. Okay, what's a doctrine that you would like to learn more about that you feel like, if I had a week of free time, no responsibilities, I would just love to read books on this doctrine. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a little bit fascinated by the disagreements about the end times, eschatology. Mm. And you jump into that. I probably that. would, just because <laughs> so many people throughout church history have had, you know, sometimes wild views yeah. about, about the end times. <laughs> and, and you see throughout church history the attribution of different things in Revelation to different historical figures. And so some of it is just intriguing. Yeah. Okay, what's the most misunderstood doctrine? Oh, man. I'll, I'll just pick one. Total depravity, I think, as a subset of the doctrine of sin or hamartiology, can be very misunderstood, mm. um, both by people who affirm it and by people who don't like it. <laughs> uh, sometimes people who don't like it, they'll hear Calvinistic or Reformed people talking about total depravity, and they'll, and they'll think, oh, man, are you saying that I am just... Number number one, are you saying that I'm as bad as I could possibly be? And number two, are you saying that, you know, someone who's not a Christian can't even do any anything nice or anything good? Mm. And the answer, of course, is no. On both of those counts. <laughs> On both of those counts. But, you know, understanding the doctrine of total depravity is that we, our fallen state, in our fallen state, we have been affected in every way by sin. It doesn't mean that things are as bad as they could possibly be. Mm. God's common grace actually prevents things from being as bad as they could possibly be. Yeah, yeah. All right, last question. Who's your favorite dead theologian? Well, you know, I, as a, I've mentioned before, I'm a Presbyterian. Um, <laughs> so I, I would probably have to go with, I, I love John Knox 
so John Knox is the father of Scottish Presbyterianism. It, one, one anecdote about Knox is that, you know, when the Westminster divines got together to write the Westminster Confession of Faith, it took them like six or seven years in Westminster Abbey. And when John Knox sat down to write out the Scottish Confession, he did it in four days. <laughs> just and knocked it out. He just knocked it out. And he, he was a fiery, reformed guy. He had some very fierce words for Mary, Queen of Scots, um, and her kind of oppression of the church, and just bold and courageous for the gospel. So, yeah, he, I would say probably Knox. John Knox. Well, John, thank you so much for talking to us today and, and leading us through some of these objections, some of these uh, maybe myths that people often struggle with when it comes to systematic theology and showing why they might not be, they might not be right. Yeah, thanks. It's great, great to do this and great to be with you, Matt. That was John Nielsen on six common objections to studying systematic theology. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Knowing God's Truth, An Introduction to Systematic Theology. Pick up a print copy of the book for 30% off, or get the ebook or audiobook for 50% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. For more audio content like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a review. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.